Well, welcome and good morning, Trinity Bible Church, as well as visitors and family. Uh, we are now back into the Gospel according to Matthew, no longer the Gospel according to the Galatians. Uh, we are in chapter 18. Uh, we will be continuing through Matthew up until Advent, the first Sunday of December through the month of December. We will uh, have Advent or Incarnation um, preaching from the Old Testament in anticipation of uh, the birth of Christ. And then after that, we'll pick up Matthew again uh, in the new year. And so uh, as, a, as a kind of catching up mechanism, I just wanted to give a few things since it's been um, three months since we were in Matthew. Uh, one of the things that we made an emphasis on as we were going through Matthew from, from chapter 1 until 17 and we finished was the, the emphasis and the reality of, of the kingdom of heaven as Matthew articulates it, as also being synonymous with the kingdom of God uh, that Luke and Mark discuss. Uh, this has to do with this eschatological or, or um, viewing the, the towards the end when Christ is going to culminate this kingdom in finality, and yet incarnation, where, where Christ is, is walking in the flesh, the God-man, he, he has also inaugurated that kingdom. And so as he's gone through all of Matthew, and he's discussing with both those primarily who are with him, the disciples, as, as the word that will designate those who are both the chosen twelve, as well as those who believe in Jesus and are following and helping minister to him during that time. You also then have the crowds. And the crowds are those who see Jesus as almost a party favor. Let's see what he's going to do. Let's hear what he's going to say. Let's get a free meal. Because those happen around him sometimes too. And so you see the way that Matthew writes this gospel, there's always the disciples, and there's always the crowds, and then there's another category that, that you would call his adversaries. Those who are following him, just like those other two groups are following him, but their method of following him is to discredit him with the crowds. And discredited his, his name amongst Israel where fame is spreading about what he's saying and what he's doing. Predominantly the miracles which are pointing to the power that he has and the events of his life that you see even in the baptism of John and the, the coming down of the Spirit and the kind of Trinitarian union that is seen in that moment. All aspects of Matthew are pointing that Christ is this one looking all the way back in Genesis 3, the fall of man and the promise of the one who would crush the head of the serpent that would come from the seed of the woman, all of it is showing that Jesus is this one, this Jesus, this, this descendant of David. He is Messiah. And that's made clear when this last section of reading that we went through in 15 through 17, where you have Jesus talking specifically about the church and the future of the church. And then you have Peter's confession 
of who Jesus is. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then Jesus is transfigured. His glory is shown to a select few. And then in doing so, culminates that aspect of the gospel. This is who he is. He is the long-awaited one. He is the Messiah. He is the fulfillment of all the hopes and prophecies of Israel. He is now amongst us. And yet, in this gospel, Matthew still wants you to pay attention to the crowds and to his adversaries. And the way this book is really broken up, you can kind of take it in terms of Either some people divide it up in the discourses of Jesus and things like that. I think that's probably too technical if we get into that. All I would say is Matthew divides his gospel up in what you would say is like the life of Jesus, where you see Jesus walking and interacting and healing people and kind of having small interactions with people, teachings. And then you have long discourses like the Sermon on the Mount that lasts several chapters. And then you'll have some more, what you would call life of Jesus, where he's walking and he's doing things and you see it. And then you have another discourse, like say chapter 10, where he, he sends out the disciples. Remember that? Sends out the disciples, empowers them to do the same things, the same, the same works of miracles. And he's giving them a taste of what their mission will be when he is gone. And then you have a really long section primary of 11 through 15, where that's where the adversaries at this point in the gospel are the most prominently put forward. Every interaction Jesus has, who's there? Someone to ask him a tricky question. Someone to accuse him of being unlawful on the Sabbath. And so he's contending with these adversaries in 11 15. And interestingly enough, that's where you have uh, in 13, where you have his parable of the seed. And he's talking about the kingdom. And one of the main points of that is that no matter what, the true seed, no matter what adversarial way that that the world or any other system or Satan comes up against it, the true seed will grow. And so then after all of that, you get into that part we've already talked about in 15 through 17, where here Jesus, for the first time in the Gospel of Matthew, talks about the church, talks about the keys of the kingdom, talks about binding on earth and and heaven, and that that language is going to come in this chapter as well as 18 in an application of reconciliation. And so that's where we are. And now 18 moving forward is going to be several chapters, another chunk of what you would call dialogue, teaching, or discourse, where Jesus is going to be coming rapid fire, And here in 18, we have him discussing what it means to be a disciple prompted by an incredible question by the disciples. Never be amazed at the disciples going from their ups and downs. Uh, but, But always be very, very sure that you understand you are a disciple. And you need to think no further and look no further than yourself to see yourself, and I've seen Christ in his glorified state, and I've pronounced that he is the Messiah. And now I'm wondering if I'm going to be number one in the kingdom. (laughs) And so, uh, this morning, very well-known text. I'm going to read more than we're going to actually cover, which is we're covering 
uh, verses 1 through 9 in chapter 18 of the Gospel according to Matthew. But we're reading all the way to 14 because that's actually that part of this dialogue is all together. It's one teaching unit. And you see that it's one teaching unit by the framework in which it was written that, that the subject that Jesus is using, the example he's using, is little child and little one. Two different Greek words, both used three different occasions. And so it's how you measure who Jesus is talking about. So when you're looking at this, I hope in the future, don't divide it up into uh, this one's talking about children, this one's talking about sin, and this one's talking about sheep. No, you're going to see it's all one dialogue in the framework of this example Jesus is going to use based on the question he gets from the disciples. So after I read verses 1 through 14, we're going to focus on verses 1 through 9. After I read out loud, I'll ask for a time of of private, silent prayer. Confess your sins. Repent of them. Ask the Holy Spirit to illuminate your heart and mind to the truth of the Word. Then I will pray for us corporately, and we'll enter into the time of the Word. Reading now from 18, 1 through 14, in the Gospel according to Matthew. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Please take this time to pray.
Heavenly Father, grant mercy on us, your people, your church, though regenerate, redeemed, filled with God, the Holy Spirit, sealed for redemption and future glory, yet we still err. We still sin. We continuously are at war with ourselves. God, and we come to you this morning, broken people, in need of remembrance, in need of reminding of your great love, mercy, and grace. You look on us, your people, and you see every spot. You see every poor decision. Every wayward thought. And you claim it as yours. Paid for. By the blood of Christ. God, renew our hearts and minds this morning through the power of your word in this sacred assembly. And God, convict those who are outside of the faith by the power of your gospel. We pray this to the glory of your name. In Christ's name, amen. Put a group of boys together, have them go about some type of task or play some type of sport. It doesn't take long before one begins to look at the other and go, probably better than him. That's not shocking to anyone, right? Either as a wife or a mother or as a boy yourself, no matter what age, as one of my sons tells me, Uh, Dad, you're this much man and this much little boy. And I think I can take him, but that's not the point. What you see here is a kind of integral aspect of the mind of humanity. And the reality being that, that these disciples, while following incarnate God, we've watched them have incredible highs, incredible lows, see the most unimaginable things done by, by Messiah himself, been, have certain truths revealed to them, and yet continue in this way. And it should be, I would say, not frustrating, but refreshing to all of us. This is the state of man. I go to uh, some of the other accounts here. If you want to, you don't have to turn there. I'll just kind of go through. In Luke, it's in chapter 9. And and it's a much more uh, uh, smaller detail. It just starts in 46. And it says, an argument, that's an extra detail, arose among them to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child. 
And then we see also, <clears throat> excuse me, we see also in Mark a similar detail. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down with them and brought before them a child. So the other gospel accounts kind of give like, This question that came up was actually based on an argument that while Jesus was away, the 12 were arguing that, well, certainly I'm the greatest. And that's why I made the kind of tongue-in-cheek comment about Peter, is Peter was like, well, I'm the one who has the keys. And so, pretty sure it's me. One of the interesting things, when you read ancient commentaries from the early church fathers, they all attribute this to Peter. Like, it doesn't matter who it is. They're all like, this is Peter, whether it's Jerome, Hilary of Poitiers, and you can keep going back further and further, and they all kind of say the same thing. This was Peter telling the other disciples he was the greatest. Well, that's not there, but I see where the connection points come in. It sounds very Peter. But isn't it interesting Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? One commenter adds, this was the disciples asking Jesus, who was the captain of the all-star team? And Jesus is going to remind them, are you sure you're even on the team? Imagine that. So Jesus does something very interesting and accounted in the the other synoptics as well. He doesn't answer the question immediately. It says, calling to him a child. He put him in the midst of them and said, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus, faced with prideful disciples, arguing among what would have certainly had to have been things that they've seen each other do in the three years together, bringing accounts of better than this or better, whatever that argument looked like, whatever that discussion looked like, they were concerned about a place of prominence in Jesus' future kingdom that Jesus had been teaching about since the beginning. And later on, in the same book, one of their moms will go to Jesus and say, hey, my sons are going to be next to you, right, when your kingdom comes? So later on, this is still a thing happening, except some of them sent their moms to do it for them. (laughs) Embarrassing. But what does he say? He doesn't answer these 12 unique who will become extraordinary men when they receive the Spirit, chosen specifically by God, who will be the greatest? And this is Jesus called the child. The, the Greek word there for child is, is basically a, it, it could, we don't know the age. It, it's basically under the age of puberty, essentially, it could have been. But more than likely from the ta- context, most people would say that it has to be like a toddlerish type age. So someone in the crowds is there. And there's children there, obviously, because they're with their families. 
So he points to a child and says, bring that child to me. And so they do. And the child, you can imagine. And the child is put amongst this group of men who are known. Those are Jesus' guys. Those are the disciples. They're following him. And the child is put in the middle of them. Be like that one. And so, how we take this verse generally goes two ways. No, it generally goes one way. What happens now after that verse is, is commentators, teachers, preachers of all sorts throughout history begin talking about all the attributes and values and, and virtues of children. I am not going to say anything because I have children. There are no virtues to... Ch- I'm just kidding. But the reality is Jesus is going to now use kind of a literary device. He's both talking about improving something by showing them this child who in front of these adults and in front of Jesus is in this great state of humility and fear. And so these these apostles who are arguing who's going to have the highest rank when this kingdom comes in, when Jesus lays waste to Rome, are we gonna, who's going to be right there next to him? Who's at the right hand? Who's at the left hand? It's, you see that all the way in chapter 20 with <clears throat> the brothers of thunder and their mother coming to Jesus, asking that left hand, right hand. And so he puts this child, and so they're reminded by this fearful child who is showing uh, humility towards these adults and towards Christ, be like that. But then when he turns and says, you must turn, it's the word that means repent. It's the word that means change. And since it's in the passive, you can actually translate it as others have. You must be changed. So he puts this child and he's reminding them of the the way this child is acting and what this child is displaying. And he's showing them to the heart Hubris and pride is not how one enters the kingdom. Certainly not how one becomes the greatest. It is being transformed. It's being changed. It's repenting in humility. Now, they don't tell us who generally asked the question, but that's why I think it opens up more when it says in the other two Gospels, where they're all arguing about it. Otherwise, the next thing would have been, well, Peter asked it, not, it was, it was always Peter. So unless you are turned and become like children, or like this child, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest. So what is the point of this text? The point of this first section of text, these first few verses, is not that children are innocent. I want to say that again, in case you didn't hear it. The point of this text is not the innocence of children. We know already that Christ has pointed sinfulness to all attributes of humanity, including children. He's pointing to their pride, and what they need is humility. And what they need then is to be changed and turned from that. How does one become the greatest in the kingdom? 
be humbled before an almighty God and repent and be transformed. Now, in the same time, the child is in front of them as an example and still it also is somewhat about this child. And this was a most times when, when this is talked about, it begins in a dialogue that simply isn't in this text. It either talks about all children go to heaven or all children are innocent. So one way you either turn it into some type of universalism or you turn it into where original sin doesn't exist. And the reality is it's more to do with this attribute of humility. And so then this child becomes example and little ones and little child will transform through this text as we read this morning to really confronting the disciples who are the little children and are the little ones. And all who come to Christ have to be humbled before him. And we'll get into that. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. So, child as child, but also child as example of humility in the kingdom, and that humility is what one of these things that defines a disciple, goes all the way back to the Sermon on the Mount. And now the example is given now, this little one before you. So the, the, the apostles are supposed to be looking at this child and now imagining what Jesus is saying. Whoever would seek to harm this child, a child, better for them. One of these little ones who believe in me. And yet little ones is going to be attributed to lost sheep. It's going to be attributed to the disciples themselves. And so it's, a, it's, a, it's a, an example before them. And, and we can all relate to it. Can we not, in our culture today, think of the mistreatment of children? Isn't there an innate anger horror, sadness that rises up when you think about that. And so that when he has this child as an example and says the following, whoever receives one in my name receives me, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, and he says better to die a horrible death. And so as that image is before the disciples, they're supposed to think now, about sin. And he's going to turn this teaching very dramatically in the next portion. And so as he's confronted them with their hubris or with their pride, and he's countering it with the reality that they need to be humble, and that that is the entrance for citizenship, but really the entrance is the transformation part or the change, we now get to this aspect of sin. So, to preface all of this next portion, the reality of entrance into the kingdom being centered on being changed in repenting 
We all have that down, right? In order for me to believe, the proof of my belief, if you will, is that I have repented. I have confessed my sins to God and and been transformed by that. that. That doesn't mean my life is now sinless, but I now am at war with sin. I'm no longer a compatriot with sin. That transformation aspect of, of radical transformation of someone coming to faith in Christ and being regenerated by the Spirit and being a new creation, being turned, being changed. But now Jesus is going to talk about sin Woe to the world, in verse 7, for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. Woe to the world for temptations to sin. As little one, as little child, as disciple, Jesus is condemning the world for the temptations that come to his children. Do you see it? Woe to the world for the temptations. He's drawing a designated line for these apostles. The apostles are still there, still being taught. The child is still there. Jesus goes from this aspect of asking who's the greatest and arguing about it and showing them humility and transformation is how one becomes the greatest in the kingdom. And then that there's a reality of sin and temptation in the world. Woe to the world, which is tied to the idea of the one who draws one who belongs to Christ away through sin, better for them to die with a millstone, which is a, um, a work tool. There were small millstones that were, were used in everyone's house, and then there were really large ones that were around, kind of used by, by beasts of labor. And so the imagery is better for that to be put around someone's neck, which would be an immediate, almost cartoon, flip into the water, straight to the bottom. Woe to the world for temptations to sin. How serious. How deadly serious we should take. Worldliness. Temptation. How deadly serious Jesus is communicating this. Better for someone to have a millstone tied around their neck and drown than to cause one of his to sin. And he tacks it to the world, the cosmos. Everything in creation that is broken and sinful And under the leadership of Satan, who is a liar. 
we know elsewhere. Satan, the world, what do they want of Christ's little ones? If you are in Christ, you are one of his little ones. You were transformed by the power of the gospel. That God redeems man through the sacrifice of his son so that you might be adopted sons and daughters of the Most High God and have an inheritance for eternity when his kingdom comes. And Jesus is telling his disciples, the very world seeks to tempt and draw away his little ones, you and I. How serious do you face temptations in your life? Are you deadly serious about it? Or do you shrug? Ah, it's temptation. It happens. The world has fallen. Please come, Jesus. Now, that's, that's not the life that Jesus is calling his disciples to. Rigor in understanding. The world itself seeks for me to fall away. That's the message. You're in part of the kingdom, but the world is literally after you. Until this world is made new and transformed when Christ returns, it is after you. The image of Jesus showing a little child and making the disciples think the world is after that, like a small child, a child who is is humble and fearful, which we are supposed to be before God. And yet the world as a whole and Satan, who is a liar and all of his forces are after you. Do you understand that? Woe to the world for temptations to sin. But it is necessary that temptations come. But woe to the one whom the temptation comes. He talks to his disciples now who who you have to imagine are sitting there going, we were just talking about who could do more push-ups. And now we're being told the world. You're like little children. You like to be like this child. And some and the, the world is seeking to draw you away from me. And you belong. Jesus is saying you belong to me. It's necessary that temptations come. We know that from, from other books in the New Testament. Temptations and evil will increase. And then there's this, this part, but woe to the one by who the temptations comes. It's a, it's a view in the fact that Christ, <coughs> excuse me, who is saving his own, redeeming his own, advocating to his own now before the throne of the Father, will one day judge the evil of the world. And one day they will have recompense 
both the forces of Satan and those who sought to draw away his children. And now Jesus does the most Jesus thing we've seen in this particular text, is now he's going to turn it directly on his disciples and directly on all of his disciples from this time forward. He's now going to repeat a teaching that he's done earlier in the book about sin and about temptation and about the deadly serious nature of how we're supposed to take it. Look what he writes. Look what Matthew wrote, I should say. Verse 8. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown in the hell of fire. He's mentioning Gehenna. He's mentioning this this imagery of, of hell and the separation from God. But what he's doing to his disciples now, as this has progressed, and as it will go into the teaching that will continue (coughs) through 14, with the child before them, asking their question based in pride and hubris, as they were discussing after seeing multiple miracles from 15 through 17 and, and all through everything they've seen for three years now with Christ, one of the things they're most curious about is who's going to have the greatest position next to Jesus. Jesus is going to be number one, but who's going to be number two? Who's going to be number three? What's the hierarchy going to look like? Here's a child. Fear and humility before God. Being transformed from from a person of pride and hubris and selfishness to one of selflessness, sacrifice, humility, by the power of God, enters the kingdom of heaven. And then tells them the reality. And yet sin, sin is coming for you in the form of temptation that is everywhere in the world. Woe to the one who does so. Woe to the world itself for the temptation. Yet it must increase both for the purification of the church and the coming of Christ in his kingdom and fullness. And now he reminds them the world is out to get you in a very literal sense. But also you're out to get you. And so he gives this graphic imagery. If your hand causes you to sin, if your foot causes you to sin, better to cut it off and throw it away. Now, when, we, when you're hearing that, and when you're reading it, you're, you're supposed to go, hold on. Is Jesus being literal here? I hope you don't ask that question. I hope I've explained that he, he's using a, a lesson 
and using imagery and using allegory throughout the next several chapters as he's teaching through parables. What he's telling you compounds or builds on what what we've just talked about, the deadly serious nature of temptation and sin. What he's trying to say is, whatever is in your life that will draw you away from me, whatever temptation, whatever sin, throw it away. Whatever is, is, is going to lead you down that road, Cut it off and throw it away. The imagery is supposed to frighten you. It's supposed to be graphic. If your eye is causing you to sin, the word that's used is the idea of of pulling it out, which is impossible, I would think. I've never tried. But it would be really hard and painful. And that's the point. If that's causing me, better to be blind and enter the kingdom than to be thrown in the fire and separation from God. Transformation, turning and repenting, being born again, regenerate by the Spirit, means that because you have the Spirit, you have the strength through God to do these very things in your life. Whatever sin you feel is too strong for you, it isn't. Cut it off. Excise it. Amputate it from your life. The imagery of mutilation, self-mutilation, is to just show you the degree that we're supposed to take in our pursuit of mortification of sin, putting it to death. I know the details of many of your lives. I don't know all of them, and none of us know the things we hide from each other. But I know this. Everyone struggles with temptation. Everyone fails and sins. And, and many people have things that are unique to them and others are more mundane or more general. But the reality is you can never shrug your shoulders and go, that's just the way I am. That's just the way God made me. No. God remade you. Amen. You're transformed. That may be who you once were. But God's calling you to see yourself transformed as a child of God. His little one, the one who you're going to see next week, who he will pursue over the hills and leave the 99 who haven't strayed just so he can draw you back. There's no falling out of his hand. There's no loss of your salvation, but you can certainly lose your Your love. One of the clearest signs that somebody is struggling, according to Barna, and again, I I know polls are not great, but he generally polls just within churches themselves, is that when a person begins, a Christian begins separating themselves. 
begins not showing up for things that they used to. And it'll particularly be at the highest point when they stop attending local assembly. One week, two weeks, maybe they're sick. Reach out to them, no, I'm fine. Three weeks, four weeks. That's when those who have not, who are still here, are supposed to pursue. Is something going on? Are you okay? I pray that we see the deadly serious nature in the way that Christ is telling his disciples how to view sin and temptation. And I pray you see it the same way as Christ's little ones, as his children. The world seeks to draw you away from him. Satan, the liar, wants you to devour you, to celebrate over your corpse. But Jesus has already defeated him. That was way early in the book. And right now, while we strive in this fallen world, we are empowered by the Spirit. We're given God's very word that he's revealed to us. I want you to be encouraged in the midst of failure that there are people in this congregation who love you. Do not exile yourself if you find yourself in a downward spiral of sin. Reach out. And if you know someone's struggling with something, go forward and find them and grab them and speak with them and pray with them and draw them back. Christ calls us to be reminded He is victorious. And so are you in him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ. While a sinful and rebellious people In eternity past, God the Father chose, gave to the Son to be his own who would redeem them, to whom God the Holy Spirit sealed, indwelled and regenerated, that those people might glorify God, might reflect him in their striving against the evil of this world. May our joy overflow with the reality of our salvation in such a great God. And we pray, God, that those who are outside the faith would be drawn by the Spirit, transformed and regenerate, that they might repent and turn 
to new life in Christ. And Lord, until You come and bring Your kingdom in finality, may You strengthen Your church until that time. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. Amen. Uh-huh. Thank you, Morning. morning.